city of David. David's town. Davidsville. Davidsburg. You get the idea. David had been ruling over Judea for several years, for seven years. Recently anointed king over all of Israel. This has been made possible because of the death of Saul. Now David moves his headquarters to Hebron, to the Jebusite city of Jerusalem, the leaders of which taunt David, saying that even the blind and the lame could repel his army. David takes this stronghold, turn this thing on here, and he names it after himself. Becomes known as the city of David. David owns the town. Everything changes. He puts his larger-than-life stamp on this stronghold, and he names it after himself. And it is from this site that the greatest king in Israel's history will reign. You know, there's something impressive about a city that bears your name, isn't there? Something impressive about it. And it's possible because it's possible that David's gesture of naming the city after himself was the first occasion, possibly the only occasion in the Bible, of someone naming a city after themselves. But we're quite familiar with the practice of naming cities after people, aren't we? Bentonville, Arkansas. It's named after Senator Thomas Hart Benton. Charleston, South Carolina. King Charles II of England. Louisville. Named after King Louis the 16th, 1778. You didn't know I knew that, did you? A little bit of history, right? We can get even closer than that, can't we? Jefferson County. Named after then Virginia Governor Thomas Jefferson. In 1780, Jefferson Town. Now, whether it was named after Jefferson County or the then Vice President Thomas Jefferson in 1797, I'm learning the history of the area, thank you very much, still named after a person. You can go on and on. There's all kinds of cities everywhere that are named after people. But these cities were named after people by someone other than the person that it's named after. This young new king captures a stronghold and names it, hey, I think I'll name it after me. I'll name it after myself. Now while he did capture this stronghold for himself, and he named it after himself, there were some strongholds in David's life that he did not capture. And his failure to capture these strongholds, in many cases, was spectacular. We call it today an epic failure. One of those strongholds that he failed to capture was the stronghold of illicit sexual desire. Fast forward a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and you're going to find the details of David's affair with Bathsheba. If there was a flaw in David's character, it was, re it was revealed when he happened to see what he should not have seen, 
And then, yielding to temptation, he did what he shouldn't have done. Okay? Bad enough. Make things worse. He tried to, he compounded the sin by hatching a plot to kill the woman's husband so he could hide the whole thing. And you know what? He did a really good job of hiding it, didn't he? And nobody else knew about it. Nobody on earth knew about what he did. But there was one person that did know. One being that did know. He couldn't hide it from God. You know, today we might lust after a lot of things. But this stronghold of improper sexual desire is still a citadel that resists capture. It resists defeat. And the internet, for all its good and all its knowledge and all its wealth that you can find, is, has increased the ease by which someone can access illicit sexual material. It's easy. Sometimes it just happens by accident. It just happened a few words. I can remember when the internet first came, I was browsing with helping the kids find some stuff, and I mistyped something, and I'm going, no! And I'm, I'm diving for the screen. It's like, oh. I did that with helping a, a fellow preacher set up his email, and I, missed, I mistyped hotmail. Well, it wasn't quite what I was looking for. Uh, you know, parents are rightly concerned that your children are going to inadvertently come across something on the Internet. And parental controls and safe settings sometimes just aren't enough. These sites can still be accessed even though all that stuff is there. But being a devoted follower of Jesus, you would think that that would make us immune to illicit sexual desires, wouldn't you? You would hope it would. But you know what? It don't. It does not make us immune to this. But it is... You, you would think it would even be easily conquered. It's not. Jesus addresses the issue on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 27, 28 says, You've heard that it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in her heart. You don't have to go to bed together to commit adultery. All you got to do is think about it. And it's just as bad. He's speaking to his disciples and others who have been crowded in to listen. And he's saying, being a follower of Christ does not make you immune to temptation. It doesn't make you immune to temptation. By all accounts, Christians are very much vulnerable to the temptation of illicit sexual desire. We're just as, as vulnerable as anybody else. And unfortunately... We live in a sexualized culture. It's virtually impossible to go through one day without being exposed to some provocative image. You can't do it. Whether it's on the TV, whether it's in a magazine, whether it's on the internet, whether it's simply walking in a grocery store. You're going to be exposed to it. 
The sex industry itself is arguably the most profitable industry in the world. Human trafficking is a huge problem. Pornography revenues are in the billions. And there's millions of sites on the internet. No, I did not go and count them. God wants this stronghold to come crashing down. But David's failure was epic. He could conquer a city, but he couldn't conquer his own sexual desire. Another stronghold that David failed to conquer was a stronghold of pride. He struggled to capture this. You know, anyone who strolls into town, proclaims himself the law, names the town after himself, must have had an ego the size of Mount Carmel, you know. I mean, it's, his ego had to have been huge to do that. David was not immune to flattery and praise the people. Remember, as he was coming into town, what were they saying? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Yeah. Did David like that? Oh, yeah, he liked that. He was a giant slayer. He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a Renaissance man, basically. And he could do just about anything. And he liked to charm the ladies. Pride. That was David. He had a huge issue with pride. Then one day, he wanted to find out how many people in the land called him king and would follow him into war. How big of an army can I muster? So he orders a census to find out. 2 Samuel chapter 24, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And so the prophet of God had to call the king and school him on what it means to be humble and obedient to God. Because what did God say? Don't take a census. David did it. He was going to do it anyway. David appears to put more trust in numbers than he did on the strength of God. Really, did it matter? As long as David had faith in God and trust in God, did it matter how big his army was? How many people did Gideon have to have in order to defeat an army? 300. Didn't matter how big the army, matters how big the commander. And remember that song we sing with the kids? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. David didn't think that. He figured he had to have the size of an army. You know, one of the problems with pride is that it is so ugly. Pride is ugly. It, you all know people who are proud, right? They're braggarts. They're full of themselves. Does it wear well on them? Does it look pretty on them when they're acting like that? Do we like being around people? that are full of themselves, that are braggarts. Big question is, can we spot that in ourselves? Can we spot this ugliness in ourselves? Or do we need someone else 
just like David needed Nathan to say, you're the man. The good news is that pride is one of those character flaws that, can, uh, that is relatively easy to work on. We begin by every day by resolving to deflect attention away from ourselves, to serve others, to brag about somebody else's accomplishments, and to shut up about my own, be mum about what I've done. Basically, you focus on the great things that other people are doing and don't even care about what I've done. Conquering the citadel of pride might not happen overnight. It might take a little while to do it, but it's definitely a stronghold that can be brought down if we work on it on a day-by-day basis. Another stronghold that David found difficult to defeat was the stronghold of obedience. Was David ambitious? You bet he was. Was he proud? Was he powerful? Was he strong-willed? Oh yeah. Obedience didn't come naturally to him. He was also uh, pretty prone to really kind of taking things in his own hands. You know, when the lion and the bear came after his, his sheep, he didn't just kill them. He tore them apart with his own hands. That's a little overboard. He got in as a young whippersnapper and started barking at everybody about this big old Philistine coming out and making fun of the children of Israel, this giant, and here he is just a kid, and he's laying the law down to everybody else around him. He rejected, again rightly so, but he still rejected the king's advice about wearing armor. Oh, I'm good, I don't need it. He didn't tell him why. He just said, nope, I'm good, I don't need it. He willfully disobeyed the commandment enshrined in the nation's legal and moral history. He murdered. He committed adultery. Coveted his neighbor's wife. He stole from his neighbor. That is, he stole his neighbor's wife. Unfortunately, Women were considered property back then. And if you took your neighbor's wife, it was theft. He ignored God's commandment about taking a census. In short, we have difficulty in making a case that David cared a whole lot for God's will. Since he seemed to really enjoy doing things the way he wanted them done. He was headstrong, he was willful, and he was disobedient. No wonder he found himself in a lot of trouble. And in his poems and his psalms, we find himself pleading for help. Pleading for God to extricate him from the mess that he put himself into. Pleading with God for forgiveness. 
We also find David unable to defeat the stronghold of justice. In short, the king had family problems. David had some serious family problems, and they can be traced by, to the fact that he did not provide justice when justice could have so easily taken care of the problem. <coughs> Second Samuel chapter 18. We find a tragic story concerning David's children, specifically his firstborn Amnon, his son Absalom, and his daughter Tamar. Absalom began to hate his father, and his hatred stems from the fact that his half-brother Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, or rapes, it's actually Absalom's full sister, excuse me, it's Amnon's half-sister. Both Absalom and his mother, uh, Mecca, as Tamar's mother, expected King David to do something about it. Rape even then was a horrible thing. It was deserving of death. They expected King David, since this was your family, surely you're going to do something about it. But David refused to provide justice in this case. Basically, he didn't do diddly. He didn't do anything. Nothing. He refused to provide justice. You can see some obvious parallels to today's context. But biding his time, Absalom took care of what, in a way that he felt was proper, of the problem. He killed his half-brother Amnon and fled the country. Then he led an unsuccessful revolt against his father and tried to take leadership of the country from him. Unfortunately, this is where he met his fate. So, because David failed to give justice, he lost he not only lost his, un, his firstborn, his child born to Bathsheba, but he also lost his firstborn Abnon and his third son Absalom. Lost them all. Not to speak of the, the injury, the trauma that was inflicted upon Tamar. And you know what? You never find David expressing any remorse, any tears, any concern at all about what happened to his daughter. Nothing. But listen to Absalom's words while he was campaigning against his father, while he was trying to get his father's job and take the kingdom away from him. There were those who were coming to the city, and they would come to the city and they would seek justice for personal matters. And they were bemoaning the fact that they weren't getting justice. So Absalom says, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. In other words, what he's saying, king doesn't care about your problems. King doesn't care about your troubles. So he's not going to do anything, and you're not going to get justice from him. But Absalom would go on to say, 
Oh, that I were judge in this land. Basically, says, and now he said, now if I were king, then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Those last few words right there tell about David's view of justice. I would give him justice. Clearly, Absalom and a fair number of David's constituents felt that their king was tone deaf when it came to delivering justice. They felt the king didn't care about them. And probably rightly so. Because he wasn't giving justice. You know, and this is really strange referring to a man who penned psalm after psalm asking God to vindicate and deliver him. David is asking God for what? Justice. But he is unwilling to give justice. David basically wanted justice for himself. Yet delivering justice for other people was something David had a real hard time with. David had a hard time conquering that stronghold of justice. And yet the amazing aspect of this story can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 10. Where it says, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. In spite of all of these weaknesses that David had, the Lord continued to be with him. And he became stronger, not weaker. His failures were spectacular, even epic, right? When David messed up, he didn't do it small, he did it big time. His arrogance and his disobedience resulted in the death of thousands of his own people, not to speak the death about the death of some of his own children. That's on him. That's on David. And yet, God blessed him and made him stronger. You know, for all the strongholds that David could not conquer... There was one quality that he possessed that kept him close to the heart of God. He had a unique ability to see the ugliness and the depth of his own sin when it was pointed out to him. Remember his response when Nathan finished up his story and said, David, you're the man? It tore him up right to the heart. When a mirror was held up to him, he recognized the image of evil that was staring back at him. And he repented of his wicked ways. You know what? God is always going to be with such a person. Amen? For somebody who recognizes what they've done and they repent, God is always going to be with that person. This is the message of 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven 
and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is what David did. Yeah, David messed up. Several times, he messed up huge. But David humbled himself every time. David prayed every time. David sought the face of God in every instance. And in every instance, David turned from his wicked ways. David repented every time. In fact, this David epitomizes the type of person that God wants us to be. Because despite all of David's flaws, despite all of the spectacular errors that David made, he is still the only person in Scripture by which this description is given. A man after God's own heart. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And you know what that does for me? That gives me some hope. <laughs> if David can mess up that bad, if David can fall away that far and commit such atrocities and still all the way up in Acts, be called a man after God's own heart? What does that mean for me? That gives me hope, doesn't it? Does it give you hope? I don't think many of us are going to steal a man's wife and then kill the husband and then try to hide it and, you know, do all those horrible things. At least I hope not. No. <laughs> We're not going to do that. But we still sin, right? We all sin, right? We all fail. And sometimes we fail epically, don't we? But as long as when it's shown to us, either by providence or God or by somebody else, if we do what this says here in Second Chronicles, if we humble ourselves, if we pray, seek God's face, and turn from our wicked ways, you know what we can be called? We can be called a people after God's own heart. That's who we can be called. See, God made David stronger. Continued to make him stronger. God stayed with him, even though he continued to fail. And that means God's going to stay with you and me too. And that gives me hope to keep getting up in the morning and to keep going on and to keep serving God because my God is forgiving, my God is loving, and as long as I'm trying, God meets me the rest of the way. There is nothing that I can do that God won't forgive if I simply take these steps right here. Nothing. I could fail so epically, and still, if I do this, God is going to be with me and make me stronger. So how does that make you feel tonight? Maybe you're holding back, confessing a sin, because you don't feel that God can forgive you. 
maybe you're holding back coming to Jesus and being baptized because you feel that maybe you've lived a life that simply is not worthy of being called a Christian. I hope that the story tonight about David will tell you that that is a failure in and of itself. That that kind of information comes only from one person and it's not God. That idea comes straight from Satan because he doesn't want you to confess your sins. He doesn't want you to come to Christ and be baptized. And if he can get you to think that your sin is so great that there is never a chance that you can repent of it, that there is never a chance that God will ever forgive you of it, then guess what? He's won. But folks, he hasn't. Because my God is so great, so big, and so powerful. There's nothing my God cannot do. And there's nothing my God cannot forgive if you simply come. And we're offering you that opportunity tonight to come while we stand and sing.